Greetings everybody, it's a great blessing for me to come to you today and just uh, bring you a wonderful message of the grace of God. Today I'm not going to preach it myself, although this part of the ve- message is live, I am, uh, this is like truly live, it's not pre-recorded. And uh, today we're going to just talk a little bit about why we believe in Jesus Christ. And um, I'm, gonna be talk- I'm, gonna, I'm going to be streaming a message uh, by Zeb, uh, Ravi Zacharias, a person that I have learned so much from that has inspired me in a great way, that has impacted my life greatly. Uh, like many of you know, sadly passed away earlier this week on the 19th. And uh, he's just a legend. He has left such a wealth of wisdom for us and has impacted people all over the world. He was a Christian apologist that has traveled the world. He went through, uh, I, I, I don't know how many countries he's visited, has spoken to leaders of countries, universities, uh, educational departments, talking to people about Jesus and the impact that Jesus had. He would be what I would call the um, Billy Graham, but an apologist, explaining the gospel challenging philosophy and helping people to think along the lines of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, helping a lot of young people. When he passed away, uh, that day I was sad and uh, I mean, I, I cried a lot, not in despair, but in just thinking that we have lost such a wonderful man. But the brightness that he was shining with was not to see how bright a man can shine, but when you turn on a, on a light, you, the light shines for a purpose, and it is so that you can see. And when I turn on a light, if I've got these lights around me right now, it shines on me for the purpose that you guys can see me. In the same way, when God would bring people like Rabbi Zacharias and some great uh, men of God, would we would call, into the world, it is not so that we can stare at their brightness. It's absolutely foolish to stare into a light. We look at what the light illuminates, and this light shines on us. And what we can see through powerful ministries like that is the light that is shining upon us. And as we are looking at what God is showing us, we in turn start to shine and reflect the very light of God. And we are shining in a dark world, bringing illumination into this world. And all of that is through the power of Jesus Christ. So I want to welcome all of you to this webcast of Dynamic Love Ministries uh, Sunday live stream. And we're going to look at Ravi uh, today, and this is just going to bless you so much. I would like you, I would like to ask you to give me five minutes at the end of this message to just wrap it up, where I'm going to give a short uh, message on the resurrection of Jesus and what it means in this world. As I was thinking a lot about the resurrection this week, I just believe the Lord has shared a very practical example with me that will impact your hearts in a very great way as pertaining to the resurrection and understanding what it meant in its day and what it is meaning right now. Let us just pray together just before I share this video. Father, thank you so much that we can today celebrate you, celebrate the life of Jesus Christ and what you've brought forth through Jesus. I thank you, Lord, also for a person like Rabbi Zacharias and what you've done in him and how you have eloquently shown forth your gospel and your good news to people all over the world. Thank you so much for that. 
Thank you, Father, that we as a congregation can watch this video together and enjoy the goodness that you have given us. Father, we are also thinking of uh, Rabbi's loved ones and his family. Thank you, Lord, that you just uh, bring peace to their hearts in these times, and I know that there will be peace, but as there is a loss in their heart and as there is a need of comfort, we know that you are the comforter that comforts us all. Thank you for your love, O oh God, and thank you that our hearts can be greatly impacted by your gospel. Amen and amen. Right, let's go right into this message, and then I will chat to you right after this. With Pilate, in John 18, Pilate asks him the most important question he could have ever asked. He said, what is truth? And walked away. Imagine that. Imagine that, standing in front of him who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus had said to him, they that are on the side of truth, listen to me. And so to you this afternoon, I want to present a message within the time that I have allocated here. And the message is, why do I believe Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life? I have written a lot on this subject. I've written a book on this called Jesus Among Other Gods. I've written one called Why Jesus. None of that material am I bringing to you here today. I'm just taking some existentially relevant ideas that I hope will form the impetus within your life to carry this message everywhere you go. You see, truth is generally measured, tell us the philosophers, in three ways. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Is what you are saying logically consistent? Is it empirically verifiable? Is it experientially relevant? So there's consistency, verifiability, and relevance. May I just take <coughs> the third of these on the relevance of the message of Jesus and talk to you a little, about, little bit about it. Number one is his description of the human condition. No one, no one describes your heart and my heart more accurately than the person of Jesus Christ. You know, it's yesterday I was talking to a young woman who comes from a completely different faith, from a different part of this world. And as she was talking to me, she said to me, I never believed in God because of my faith in the icon that I believed in before. She said, now all of a sudden in following Jesus Christ, I have seen my heart in a way I have never seen it before. It was in the 1980s during the Cold War that I had been invited to Warsaw, Poland. It was grim, it was cloudy, it was cold, the Soviet presence already there, very much so in the early 80s. And I was taken to, the, to another city where I was speaking to the Polish gathering. And one day, a man, by the medical doctor, said to me, Ravi, have you ever been to Auschwitz? I said to him, yes, I've been to some uh, concentration camps, Buchenwald and Dachau. He said, no, 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 no. This is a death camp. Have you ever been to a death camp? I said, I don't think so. He said, let me take you there. So we drove. Emotionally, I was totally unprepared for what I was going to see. Totally unprepared. 
because Buchenwald, Dachau, and all, as much as they show you something, didn't show you what Auschwitz does. And as I walked in there, from room to room, the only response, the only response is pin drop silence. You see the pictures of young boys that had been castrated by Mengele, standing there as twins photographed like this, with skeletons and their skin tied taut around them, vacant, empty eyes. And you look at what the most educated generation then did to humanity. In one room, there was 14,000 pounds of women's hair stashed behind glass. When the women were taken into the gas ovens, they were stripped off their hair, which was then put into sacks and sold in the marketplace to make money out of all of this. 14,000 pounds of that hair still remained behind glass. They were being exterminated in Auschwitz at the rate of 12,000 every day. They'd be stripped naked and taken into the gas, oven, gas rooms, which they were told were actually their showers. And they'd be so tightly packed against each other, flesh to flesh, already just skin and bones. And they would not know what was coming. They were told they were going to get their first shower and all this while. Shaven bald, standing shoulder to shoulder, and the spigots would be turned on. And the gas would start to descend, and somebody would scream, gas! Another 12,000 shoveled out of there. And I remember walking out of there thinking to myself, this is what we are capable of even listening to the best music under the world and going to the highest educational systems. But I miss something in that. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the problem of evil is not so much that it's so pervasive and so strong out there, but the fact that it is deep inside your heart and mine. Viktor Frankl, who served twice in Auschwitz as a prisoner, says this, if we present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. When we present him as an automaton of human reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawns of drives and reactions, as a mere product of heredity and environment, we will feed the nihilism to, to, to which he is already prone. I became acquainted with the last stage of corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were, not the, were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. Listen to this statement now. I'm absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Not behind the Ministry of Defense in Berlin, but at the desks and the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. The theory of relativism today is being presented in the highest institutes of our learning, producing a whole generation of young men and women who no longer believe that there are absolutes. 
That's where it's happening. The early stages of corruption may be behind lecterns. The end stages is the devaluation, the dehumanization, the denigration, and ultimately, the desensitization sensitization of your conscience and mind. One of my great heroes was a man called Malcolm Muggeridge. In the early days of my conversion, I started to read Muggeridge because he was a brilliant user of language in a way I had never read anybody else. Muggeridge himself was a latecomer to Jesus Christ, possibly the greatest British journalist of the 20th century, a toss-up between him and G.K. Chesterton, both of them who ended up becoming moralist philosophers. I had the privilege of being with Muggeridge just nine months before he died at his home in England and spending one of the finest afternoons I'd ever spent in my life as he talked of his younger days and his own wanderings and we talked about the incident I'm now going to mention to you. When he was a young professor of journalism in India, he loved the Indian people. He stepped out of his quarters one morning and went into the river to swim. And as he was swimming at dawn, way out in the distance, he saw the silhouetted figure of a woman getting into the river far away from him. And he was a lustful type of individual. He decided he would make a go for her. Started to swim in, his dire in her direction, and he said in his heart there was a voice telling him, no, don't, no, don't. But he said, I smothered that voice and swam as hard as I could in her direction. And as I came closer and closer, the woman herself, of course, probably by this point, stunned that someone was invading her privacy, especially as she saw a white man emerge from the waters. And as he shook the water off his face, all he could see was a woman covering herself like that. And he said, I was shocked that I was looking into the face and the body of a woman with leprosy. Her fingers were gone. Her nostrils were gone. Her lips were gone. Her eyes looked almost like a gargoyle peering out of a wall somewhere. And Muggeridge said, I was on the verge of saying, what a horrible, ugly woman. Till he said, I paused and realized, no, I've got this wrong. It wasn't a horrible, ugly woman. It was this horrible, ugly heart with which I was living. Take the whole issue of pornography today, making its billions with supposedly the most beautiful human beings on the face of the earth, stirring up within you the ugliest passions you can ever have. Passions that no human being can ever fulfill. No human being can ever fulfill because it takes away the possibility of the impact of a person and puts in its place a feeling, a desire as a supreme pursuit to which you go, which no person can ultimately satisfy. That's what the Bible talks about. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Jesus describes your heart and mine perfectly when he says the heart is sinful and desperately wicked above all things. Do you know when the philosopher Nietzsche in 1900 before he died at the age of 54 said God is dead in the 19th century and then he went on to say a universal madness will break out in the 20th century and the 20th century will become the bloodiest century in history. He made the pronouncement, both of which took place. He took the first step in the last 13 years of his life he spent insane. And in the 20th century, we killed more people on the battlefield than the previous 19 put 
together and the weapons of warfare are piling up. Take a look at your heart. You know why? On the day you see your heart is desperately wicked in need of a savior, you could become an answer rather than just another question. description of my condition, the provision for my malady. This is the only answer in the world that offers you a savior. The only answer in the world that offers you a savior. Some years ago, I had the privilege of speaking at the United Nations prayer breakfast. They asked me to speak on the search for absolutes in a relativistic culture. Now, that's a tough subject for anywhere. And especially in the early hours of the morning, at just about before breakfast, to speak to people from so many countries and walk very cautiously, it was a toughie. You can't come in your face. You have to take about 16 minutes or so, 15 minutes to talk in terms of general understanding. And the last two to three minutes bring an answer from the Christian perspective. So I said to this to them. I said, there are four areas in which you look for absolutes, evil justice, love, and forgiveness. Evil, justice, love, and forgiveness. I said, you talk about evil empires when you get together here. What do you mean by that? You look for just society. What do you mean by justice? You leave your loved ones back home and you are here and you miss them. You know what love is all about, especially when you miss your loved ones so much. And then you are gonna, some of you are gonna blow it, you'll make mistakes and you'll want to be forgiven. Evil, justice, love and forgiveness. They were listening at the edge of their seats. I said, I have just two or three minutes left. I wanna ask you this question. Where in the world did these four converge at a moment in history? Where did evil, justice, love, and forgiveness converge at a moment in history? I said, can I take you to a hill called Calvary and show you the person of Jesus Christ? <laughs> who shows you the evil in your heart and mine, who was just and the justifier, who loved us so greatly to give himself for us, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing in the person of Jesus Christ. You know what? When I finished that talk, as the ambassadors lined up, one of the ambassadors came to me and he said, Mr. Zacharias, I come from an atheistic country. I don't want to be here. My president commanded that I come here. And every day I wake up and I wonder, what am I doing here? Why am I here? He said, today I have found my answer. I came here to find God and to find Jesus Christ in my life. One more, one more simple illustration. Years ago, I had the privilege of being at a gathering in Ramallah, Jerusalem, talking to one of the four founders of Hamas. I was taken by some friends. And he was agitated. He'd served years in prison, solidly built guy. He'd lost several of his children. And at the end of it, one of the leader, the leader of our group asked if each one of us five had a question for him. Because it was a private meeting, I won't tell you what my question was, and nor will I tell you his answer. But when he finished answering, I looked at him and I said, Sheikh, I don't like your answer. I really don't like your answer. 
I said, but let me tell you something, and you and I may never see each other again. Not far from where you and I are sitting is a hill. 3,000 years ago, a man by the name of Abraham took his son up that hill. Please, let's not debate right now which son it was. And he just looked at me. I said, we know he took his son up that hill to offer him as a sacrifice of his faith in God. And just as the ax is about to come down, God says, stop, stop. I myself will provide. I said, do you remember that story? He said, yes. I said, we are sitting very close to another hill. 2,000 years ago, God took his own son up there and provided what he promised he would. Shake, my comment to you is this, until you and I receive the son that God has provided, we will be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for position, for power, and for land, and for prestige. He just looked at me, and the archbishop who was leading the delegation figured it was time to go. <laughs> so I was walking away, about to go down the stairs, and the archbishop put his arm around me. He said, Ravi, I thought, oh, oh, here it comes. He said, that was of God. I said, I sure hope so. And we walked out, and since the archbishop was the guest of honor, the sheikh was bidding goodbye to him, but suddenly I saw him running towards me, and he turned me around, solidly built guy. And with two titanium rods in my back, I figured I was going to be history. He patted me on my face, kissed me on both sides of my face, and he said to me, Mr. Zacharias, you're a good man. I hope I will see you again someday. And I saw him wipe that tear away. Do you know what's going on in the Middle East today? A lot. Can I simplify it to one statement? It's three thousand years of history and the logic of unforgiveness. Three thousand years or more than that, five thousand years of history and the logic of, 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 of unforgiveness. And what I want to say to you is this. It's so easily spoken of. You ask a Buddhist or a Hindu, what do you know about forgiveness? Do you know what they'll say to you? Uh-uh. Karma, karma, karma. I pay my debt. I have to pay. You ask a Muslim, do you know you're going to enter paradise? He'll say, no, I'm never certain. My good deeds will have to outweigh my bad deeds. These are not pejorative statements. These are doctrinally legitimate statements of what they believe. You pay, you pay, you pay. Christ offers you forgiveness by paying the penalty himself. And so the elementary school teacher writes this. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet all soiled and blotted, gave him a new one all unspotted, and into his tired heart I cried, do better now, my child. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted, gave me a new one all unspotted, and into my tired heart he cried, do better now, my child. God's forgiveness, God's forgiveness 
is his provision for you and for me. Thirdly, his equipment in suffering. His equipment in suffering. I wrote a book along with my colleague from Oxford, Vince Vitale, it's called Why Suffering? And one of my chapters included how the various other worldviews deal with suffering. There are no answers there. There are no answers there. But you turn to the gospel writers and you turn to the teachings of Jesus who reminds you and me that he took our suffering, took our wounds, took our transgressions. And not only that, how he equips us, how he empowers us, how he indwells us in order to be able to walk through this lonely life and through this journey. You may be feeling some pain today. I don't know what it is. It may be a relationship that is just broken. It may be lines you have crossed. It may be physical maladies that you're nurturing. It may be financial struggles. It may be your home that you're weeping over and struggle to find some positive responses in a time like this. Suffering is a real part of life. We feel it again and again and again. Prior to my first back surgery, after I injured my back, I remember the days I would sit in my car and pull over into a parking spot and put my head on the steering wheel and just cry my heart out with the agony with which I was having to live and traveling wasn't helping me any. Pain is a terrible thing and you take that pain into your heart, it becomes almost unbearable at that point and life is punctuated by suffering. But I wanna tell you something that no other worldview will give to you this response. I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. This is written by James Stewart of Scotland. Brilliant thought. It is a glorious phrase that our Lord led captivity captive. The very triumphs of his foes it means to use for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that at that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know it was God himself who had tracked them down to that point. He conquered not in spite of the dark mystery of evil, he conquered through it. He conquered not in spite of the dark mystery of evil, he conquered through it. Through the process of suffering, you realize how finite you are and how desperately you need the very presence of God to carry you through. The hymn writer Annie Johnston Flint, who was orphaned early in life, and then later on had rheumatoid arthritis, lost control over internal organs, became incontinent, blind, and cancer invaded her body. Her biography is called The Making of the Beautiful. Orphaned, incontinent, arthritic, cancerous, 
blind. She wrote many hymns. One of them was this, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. As I talk to you, there's a gentleman who may be listening right now, stunned a few days ago to find out he's got a tumor in his brain that may be inoperable with his young family. And I was talking to him on the phone just two days ago, and as he wept, he said, Ravi, I'd love to live a little longer. I really would love to live a little longer. But as I'm here talking to you, I want whatever God wants for me and want him to walk through this valley, through this shadow, as I walk through these dark days. I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know Christ in you is that hope for glory. Christ in you that can turn the darkest disappointments into his appointment to conquer, not in spite of it, but to conquer through it. So here it is, he describes your condition, provides for your malady, provides equipment in suffering, fourthly and quickly, how he bridges time. Please listen to me because my final point is on the verge of starting and it'll be important. How he bridges time. The existentialist lives for the moment, the traditionalist lives for the past, the utopianist lives for the future. The existentialist for the present, the utopianist for the future, the traditionalist for the past. And as I look at what Jesus did for you and for me, he took bread and when he broke it, go back, go back for a moment. Existentialist for the moment, traditionalist for the past, utopianist for the future. He took bread and broke it, said as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, now you proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he come in the future. He gave meaning to all of time. You see, time is the canvas on which you present your portrait. Eternity is the keyhole that takes you into the gallery that gives you the whole story. You may just think it's your story right now. One day you will look through the keyhole of eternity and see his entire plan just as the men on Emmaus Road had all of history opened up to them. And when were their eyes opened? When he broke that bread. And suddenly, all of history was opened up to them. Young people, don't forget the past. Don't just live for the moment. Make sure you engage the future. All of history is fused with his meaning because history is ultimately his story. It's his story. <clears throat> and I bring you then to the final, and that is the entire truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to take you through three simple thoughts here. First, the people that it transformed. Number two, what it means for you and me. And number three, how it applies to history. So please give me your undivided attention now. I want you to follow me. This is critical that we understand that the resurrection is not merely a motif, how it defines all of history. So the first thing I want to say to you is precisely the transformation of just even three lives. Forget the others. Peter. Peter. The fluctuating, ever-impulsive Peter. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But as soon as that was said, and Jesus told him about the cross and what lay ahead, Peter wanted to have nothing to do with that. Here he goes again, fluctuating, fluctuating, fluctuating. The transformation of Peter so that he was willing ultimately to be crucified upside down and take the leadership of the church and carry that message and tell you and me to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And remember what he said. He had been witness to some great scenes. He had seen the transfiguration of our Lord, the whitest white that the eye could ever see, the brightest light that the eye could ever see, so that he fell flat on his face when the transfiguration took place as he was blinded. And when he got up, he says, Lord, let's not go down there. He didn't want to go back to that darkness anymore. And Jesus said, no, we've got work to do. And Peter is the one who said, but now we have the word of the prophets made most certain. He gives us the written word to carry. He had seen the resurrected Christ, not merely the transfigured. Secondly, Thomas. Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe until I reach on the side and feel that side and feel those hands. Jesus presented himself to him. Thomas went to my homeland. My ancestors come from the state of Kerala, which is where Thomas set foot on Indian soil to present the gospel to the Indian people. After he felt the side and touched the hands, he looked at him on his knees and he said, Ho kuriosmu, ho theosmu, my Lord and my God. Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting and killing the Christians, he gets a glimpse of this risen Christ and ended up writing one-third of the New Testament. All three of them had one thing in common. They all saw the risen Christ. All three of them had another thing in common. They paid with their lives. Just three lives. Think of all the thousands. Here's what I want to leave you with as the second thought. In 1971, when I was in my 20s, I was asked to come and speak in Vietnam. I lived in Canada at that time. And I was invited by the chaplains, the American chaplains, and ministered to the American forces and the Korean forces, the Australian. I was only in my mid-20s. I had one tiny sermon book that I put into my pocket, had a handful of sermons, and preached them again and again and again. My interpreter was a 17-year-old young man. Thousands came to Christ, and it triggered the revival in Vietnam. Somebody handed me a poem before I left. Remember, I'm in my 20s. My interpreter is 17, and the Vietnam revival broke out by the preaching of two young men. 
Here's what that piece of paper said, written by a U.S. Marine. Lord God, I have never spoken to you, but now I want to say, how do you do? You see, God, they told me you didn't exist, and like a fool, I believed all this. Last night from a shell hole, I saw your sky. I figured right then they had told me a lie. Had I taken time to see the things you made, I'd have known they weren't calling a spade a spade. I wonder, God, if you'll take my hand. Somehow I feel that you'll understand. Funny I had to come to this hellish place before I had time to see your face. Well, I guess there isn't much more to say, but I'm sure glad, God, I met you today. I guess zero hour will soon be here, but I'm not afraid since I know you're near. The signal, well, God, I'll have to go. I like you lots, I want you to know. Look now, this will be a horrible fight. Who knows, I may come to your house tonight. Though I wasn't friendly to you before, I wonder, God, if you'd wait at your door. Look, I'm crying, I'm shedding tears. I'll have to go now, God. Goodbye, strange now since I met you. I'm not afraid to die. It's an amazing little statement and I want to just read it for you, but I want to make sure I get it right. And after that statement, a quote. Will Durant, there is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while the enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history had ever known. Caesar and Jesus Christ had met in the arena, and Jesus Christ had won. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won with a handful of disciples. I close with this, and I want you to listen to every word because I want you to take it to heart and then bow your head quietly in prayer and make a fresh commitment. Malcolm Muggeridge said this, one of the most powerful statements I've ever heard. It's been years and years since I quoted it. I'm doing my best to recover and recall what it said, so please follow me now. Muggeridge says this, we look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has spoken of the rise and fall of great ones which ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen in England, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song, that the God who made them mighty shall make them mightier yet. I had heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown saying he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin 
acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as a wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, more enlightened than Ashoka. I have seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquest. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone. Gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini, dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keeps her motorways roaring in the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the, mystery and, the, uh, and the shenanigans of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charge the windmills of Watergate all in one lifetime, all in one lifetime. Beside the debris of these solemn supermen, and self-styled imperial diplomatist stands the gigantic figure of one person because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind might still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, Surrender to him, love him, follow him, serve him, live for him, and take his message wherever you go, because these solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists will someday, someday litter some desert terrain or some museum somewhere. They can dance all they want on the grave of Jesus, He's not there. He rose again. He describes your heart. He provides for your malady. He equips you in suffering. He puts meaning into every moment in history. And he conquers death through the resurrection from the grave. Those are only a handful of thoughts. There's a lot more that I could say. God bless you. What an absolutely powerful message that has just touched my heart again. I think I've listened to it four or five times. It is just an amazing, amazing message, and I love the way it ends. And that's why I want to just, if you can just uh, give me a few moments that I can share with you on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. It is not just a motive. It is real. Jesus was raised what does that mean for us today? How does it work today? How does it look and play out in our political scene? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ really mean? Let me look at, um, at Jesus and I want you to envision when he walked on the earth and he had his 12 disciples, there was 5,000 people fed. He was healing some sick people. People were following him. And then the Jews came, they started to fabricate the lies against him and said that this cannot be our king because we can see that he's not going to try to overthrow Rome. What he's going to do is he's going to bring in something that we don't want. It's all about love, it's all about kindness, it's all about those things. It's not about 
what we want. And then we find Rome looking at Jesus and seeing that he's just a troublemaker and he calls himself the king of the Jews. And what the Jews and the, and the Romans then did together, they decided we're going to kill Jesus. It would be a double victory, a victory for the Jews because they're getting this weak uh, Messiah out of their way that doesn't promise what they were thinking should take place. And then Rome is going to make a good example of anybody that wants to say, I am truly um, standing against Rome. I am the king of the Jews. So what they did was they took him and put him on a cross and they said to him, you think you're a king? Let me show you what it means to be high and lifted up. They took him, they lifted him up, put him upon a cross. The Jews were there mocking him. The Romans were there mocking him and he died. He was put in a grave and he rose again. What would that mean? How would that look in today's day and age? Imagine uh, a person in South Africa called Chris Hane. I want to tell you a little bit about him and his history. He was the leader of the South African Communist Party and was assassinated in 1993 by a Polish immigrant that was right-wing and against communism and uh, Chris Hani was shot in front of his house, if I'm not mistaken. I remember that time very well. I remember the fear that there was in the government. I remember the fear that there was for a civil war to break out. It was all on the knife edge. We didn't know what was going to happen. It was a really fearful thing. He died and he was assassinated. Fear gripped the whole country. The news media was in in uproar, we didn't know what was going to take place. I remember I was a young man um, that time. Imagine they put him or somebody equivalent, well, I wouldn't say completely equivalent, but somebody that was fighting for freedom, uh, you know, uh, uh, Luther King, take him, Martin Luther King Jr., and just see the very same thing with him. He was assassinated. He was taken to the um, to the uh, to the grave and imagine they came and they or they want to take him to the grave from the morgue and as they take him they want to open the the place where they keep the dead they find he's not there and then all of a sudden news spread that Martin Luther King Jr. was raised from the dead with sightings everywhere people saying the man was raised from the dead or in the case of Chris Harney people saying the man was raised from the dead and there was proof the grave was empty the or the morgue is empty he's not there people see him appearing to them and we know that the murderers the govern governments Everybody that wanted him, everybody that didn't want him, has, cannot do anything to him anymore, for he's conquered the ultimate. He's conquered death itself. He's conquered the grave itself. Imagine King Jr. resurrected from the dead, never to be able to die, and as he's raised and people see him and start to believe in him, his very spirit and his very life is poured out on those that believe upon him, what a change will it not bring in this world? Now, I want to say to you, you can go to Atlanta, you can go, you can go to Boxburg, and you can see the graves of these men that I'm talking about, but you can go to the grave of Jesus Christ. And as Rabbi said, you can go and dance. The world can dance on the grave of Jesus. It doesn't matter. He's not there. And I've got good news for you. He was raised from the dead bodily, and he has not left us. He is 
in a glorified state bodily. He is the king of this world. He's ruling in this world. And he is a non-violent God that influences people with his life, with his love, with his goodness, with his kindness, with his temperance, with forgiveness. And he is the bright light of life shining into each one of our hearts, illuminating us. And although it might sound as if it's taking a very long time for Jesus to do what he does, I want to tell you, he and his kingdom and his reign will outlive everything that humanity can ever throw against that. We can look at the universities, we can look at the people making a mockery of Jesus Christ, saying he does not even exist. He did not even exist as a historic figure. Rubbish. We are seeing the life of the resurrected Jesus in us and everything else will crumble to dust. But Jesus Christ, the one who lives in your heart, the one who touched you greatly in the past, continues to live in you. And the only hope you have is the hope of resurrection. I want to tell you, if we look at uh, uh, King Jr. and if he should have been raised from the dead, what would have happened? Groups would have been formed. Thinking of him, believing on him, being influenced by him and his reign and his dominion would never have been able to be ended. And that is what happened, not to him or to Chris Harney, but to Jesus the Christ. There is a human being seated in the Godhead. Rome cannot touch him. No person can remove him. He cannot be impeached. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lord, Lords. He is our president. He's the one who rules and reigns in our hearts. And as we submit to him, we are doomed to be blessed. We are doomed unto life. We are the recipients of his spirit, love, peace, goodness, kindness, temperance, faithfulness, and all those things, including healing, the gifts of the spirit, the power, powerful gifts of God is flooding our lives and we cannot but experience his goodness forevermore. We are part of something that cannot end and we need to see that Jesus wasn't raised just as a simple motif. He was bodily raised and the effect would be exactly the same as if one of these people was fighting for freedom, was raised from the dead and could never die. The only difference between normal people that would be raised and the resurrection of Jesus is we now sit with the kindest, most loving, awesome, giving person as the king of the whole world, and he is our Lord. Church, I want to say to you that we have to rethink our theology. We have to rethink the, the whole, um, our apologetics, how we approach the resurrection of Jesus, how we approach the kingdom of God, how we approach what Jesus Christ has done. It's not about a far place in the sweet by and by. It's about a man that was raised from the dead who is the king of this world right now, who rules in this world, who is touching people's hearts, who's bringing forth who and what he is inside them by his spirit as we believe upon him. And we can say this one thing, since our king has conquered death itself, it has conquered everything that leads unto death and victory with no end is his and therefore ours. Glory to God. I want to just say to you, let us think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ not as something that is spiritual, but as something that is physical that impact, impacts us today. Glory to God. I would like to just thank you that you've allowed me to serve you in a way that I thought would be good 
by just honoring uh, Ravi Zacharias. Uh, he's a man that has touched many of our lives, and I would have just I just want to bless you with this message, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to um, to hear him if you've never heard him before. I'm very thankful for his ministry, and then I'm very thankful for, and above all, thankful for Jesus Christ, the one that was willing to even to through the through the obedience unto death come to give us life, the one who truly loves us. And thanks be to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has planned it all. Last night, Elia and I we were talking about the word logos. What is what is the eternal logos? And I heard Lennox say that. Uh, logos means a, more of a logic, you know, or a way of reasoning or rationality itself. And Leon and I were talking about this going to and fro, not really satisfied with the definition. And then Elena came up with this. The word logos means plan. The word logos can be, can be summarized in this plan. And I looked at the word and I say the best way to, to say this is this way, the announced plan in the beginning God announced his plan and his plan materialized in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we now are born again of God's plan that is playing out in the resurrected Jesus and the power of heaven that has come to earth to give us life glory to God let us preach the word God's plan in action glory to God let me pray for you Father, I want to thank you for your kindness and your goodness. I want to thank you for the passion wherewith you have loved us. I want to thank you for making everything new in Jesus Christ. And thank you that, as Rabbi said, out of all the ashes of all these make-believe heroes, a, 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 a massive, powerful human being that can never die stands tall, reigning and ruling Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we can say today that the world might be dancing on your grave, but you are not there. Thank you for the resurrection, Lord, and blessing us with your life. Amen and amen. Church, thank you so much, and then I will see you again in this week, and then next week I will just be preaching normal message as always. God bless.